ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Yes, you are. And I'm yes, Dr. Michael Greenberg. We're live and we've got a great show for you today. It's our best show ever. Ever. If you want to join in the conversation, we invite you to participate with your comments and questions and praise. You can email us at sol at reachmd.com. You can also tweet us or talk to us on our Facebook page. And you can still join in the old-fashioned way if you're as old as me by old calling triple eight md one reach that's on your phone 888-631-7322 and speak with us and today's guest and that guest is dr connie mariano dr mariano made house calls for nine years at the white house she was the physician to three presidents of the united states from george bush senior through clinton to george w and if you think your practice is demanding wait until you hear what it's like to take care of the leader of the free world along with his entire family and staff that interview with Dr. Mariano is coming up soon. She is fascinating. But first, speaking of the federal government that we all love, the Department of Health and Human Services just released the new, I'm going to quote this, quote, meaningful use standards for electronic health records. The good news is if you meet them, you can get tens of thousands of dollars to set up your EMR system. The bad news is there are 864 pages of standards. I haven't quite finished reading them. Or started reading them in my case. Yeah, or I don't think I will read them. Maybe you won't, you haven't either. So we're talking with Dr. Joseph Kim, author of Medicine and Technology Blog and co-host of the ReachMD Mobile Medical Minute, to find out how to start meeting those standards. Stay tuned if you really are interested. And we are. But before we get to all of that, let's look at some recent medical news that caught our attention. And first up, trypanophobes rejoice. I'll say that again, trypanophobes for patients who are deathly afraid of injection needles. Yay, that's me. This could be your lucky day. Why? Because researchers at the Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta have developed a needle-free delivery system for the flu vaccine. It's a patch coated with 100 micro-needles filled with vaccine. The developers say all you have to do is slap the patch on like a Band-Aid, wear it for up to five minutes, the micro-needles dissolve into the skin, you take off the patch, and you're done. That's simple. That's 100 needles. That hurts 100 times more. <laughs> 100 times more. I know, that's definitely what I'm thinking too. But each microneedle is 650 microns long. It doesn't which matter. I'm going to tell you it's pretty small. And they're arranged in a grid to help make the stick on surface like a Band-Aid. It still hurts. It's been reported everywhere, <laughs> however. The LA Times picked this up, Wired, and others. There's a study published in the journal Nature Medicine. Researchers tested the patch on mice. See, mice don't care if you hurt them. And compared their resistance to the flu 30 days later against mice who got a regular needle vaccination and unvaccinated mice. I wonder if they gave lollipops to the mice. Hmm. Both vaccinated groups withstood the flu challenge, but none of the control mice lived over six days. Hmm. Now, this method is getting populous, and studies show that skin-based delivery of vaccines is much more effective than injections into muscle. Yes, we love skin. And the vaccine Band-Aid would be a lower cost, easy to start room temperature, and potentially accessible anywhere. And the GA, or we might call it Georgia, Institute of Technology, has created molds for the needles for mass production. Now, the technology has been licensed to Massachusetts company BioValve, and 3M and Johnson & Johnson are also looking to develop their own microneedles. It's not FDA approved, but clinical trials are expected to be underway and perhaps finished in the next couple of years. And some people, obviously, <laughs> they're going to still complain of pain. Ouch! Uh, depends on personal tolerance. Some are a little bit more pain tolerant than others, aka not Michael Greenberg, but it should be better 
better than a shot, obviously, and it's arguably more comfortable than nasal spray, uh, than the nasal vaccine spray. Okay, it's going to encourage people to get the vaccine where they've avoided it before. And let's talk about a new story. Okay. Imagine what you thought you were signing up for a bike race, and it turned out what you actually signed up for was a full triathlon, <laughs> a forty-kilometer bike race, plus a fifteen-hundred-meter swim, a ten-kilometer run, and a vaccination with microneedles. Would you go ahead and do it anyway? Uh, only if we take out the microneedle vaccination, and you might, especially in this case, if it was your patient who roped you into doing it, and you were his heart surgeon. <laughs> so this is a true story told in the New York Times on July 18th. Greg O'Keefe was a student at Columbia when he went out for baseball. University doctors found he had a heart murmur, and by age 26, he needed open-heart surgery to repair an aortic aneurysm, which Dr. Alan Stewart, who performed the surgery, said would have killed O'Keefe in a month without the operation. So now we fast forward a couple of years. O'Keefe decides he wants to take full advantage of his health, so he trains for a triathlon and challenges his doctor to join him. Should have done it with microneedles instead of surgery. Well, <laughs> meanwhile, Stuart's a cardiac surgeon, and we all know cardiac surgeons. They, they work all day and all night. They have no free time, and as he put it, Dinner tended to be pizza or Taco Bell. It must have been in great shape. But they both fit the training into their schedules. Stewart started coming into work with his bike. He lost 25 pounds, went from a size large to medium scrubs. I'm going on that diet. <laughs> Definitely. Now, a week before the race, Dr. Stewart fractured two ribs in a bike accident. But he raced anyway. This tough guy. His patient met him at the finish line. And there's a great picture of the paper, the two of them recovering. We're making fun of the story, but it's a heartwarming story. Mm. They credit each other with saving their hearts. And Stewart says he can hold O'Keefe up as an example to his patients who ask how well they can expect to do after surgery. It's definitely, I mean, it's, it's not often we get to see so clearly the positive double impact that doctors and their patients can have on each other, right? I mean, trypanophobia aside, this is a really great story. I want my patients to ask me about eating pizza with them. <laughs> and with that, why don't we turn over to our talk about meaningful use and what these standards are going to mean for your practice and your patients. We have Dr. Joseph Kim on the line to talk tech with us. Dr. Kim is the author of the blog Medicine and Technology. He also co-hosts the ReachMD series, The Mobile Medical Minute, and he has experience guiding physicians through the implementation of electronic health records. Dr. Kim, thanks for joining us to help walk our listeners through this meaningful use. Thanks for having me. Hey there. Um, electronic medical records, do they really have anything meaningful in them? I mean, what, what are these meaningful <laughs> Michael's use not jaded what, or anything, what are these meaningful use regulations at 864 pages? Come on. Well, I think the regulations are there because there's one thing to have adoption and simply to have the systems in your practice, but it's another thing to actually be using them in a way that hopefully will improve patient care. All right. Is that you think why they're doing this? I never quite understand how these electronic records are supposed to improve patient care. In my mind, they take us away from our patients and have us typing on computers all the time. Or am I, way, am I too old? Well, you're certainly not too old. I think that the, the real hope is to use the, um, the clinical decision support tools that are integrated into a lot of these electronic health record systems to reduce things like medication errors and to really alert physicians to, to warning signs and to also guide them through clinical decisions that are ultimately going to be evidence-based. So I think there's a lot of rationale and theoretically the use of these systems really ought to improve patient care. So it's going to be like a GPS in my car. My computer will warn me when I'm going to mix medicines that don't mix, right? Right. Let's just hope that uh, people are actually paying attention to, to the, those warnings and alerts. Well, let's say just for a second that we play the devil's advocate here and say that, as Michael put it, uh, being too old, that he is too old, and that there's been a clear indication over the years that, you know, HHS mentions only 20% of docs and 10% of hospitals even adopted basic EHR systems. So 
What has been the holdup? I mean, why are we so slow to move off the paper records? Well, unfortunately, what I've found is that the vast majority of physicians out there are very slow adopters to technology. And I think they're so accustomed and just familiar with the pen and paper that the use of a computer and just the dis- disruption in their clinical workflow is really a barrier to cause them to, to just say, listen, it's not really worth it for me. I don't want to convert all these patient charts. I don't want to move away from the pen and paper, but rather just, you know, let me do what I've always been doing for all these many years. And so I think it's, it really is a paradigm shift to look at the practice management implications of actually switching to a computer-based system. Well, Michael. wait a minute. I'm surrounded by my iPad and my iPhone and everything electronic. And yet he's speaking right to I'm your heart, speaking, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's okay with me, but I hear all these horror stories about physicians getting trapped in, in their little laptop computers. I just want it on an iPad, and I want to push three buttons and have it work. Are we going to get to that point ever? I think we will when we get to the point of uh, more sophisticated voice recognition capabilities. There, I think, at that point, you can actually dictate right into your system. And, I mean, some of these capabilities already exist. But in that case, you can actually keep your eye on the patient. You're not typing away. You can actually just talk right into the system, maybe tap on a few things on the screen, and right then and there, everything is captured for your patient encounter. Okay, so let me ask you a question. I know you don't know the answer to this, but we're just kind of talking here. So, Joe, what's going to happen when the year 2015 comes, and we got a bunch of doctors saying, like like we did with the Vietnam era, hell no, we won't go. Half of us are not going to do electronic medical records. We'll pay the penalty. They'll take the penalty. We'll take the penalty. It's cheaper than putting this into our offices. I think we're going to have a lot of people in that situation, and the government is going to have to sort of reassess based on what they've tried to push, and given the situation that there are a lot of doctors who simply did not choose to adopt, what are they going to have to do at that point? I think it's a very realistic um, scenario. Didn't this happen in Oregon where they mandated it? A lot of people got it, and they just abandoned it. Doctors abandoned the system in systems in droves because they just didn't like it and found out it wasn't working well for their practices. Right. I think that a lot of the adoption as well as the implementation is really going to be based on the kind of support that providers are going to be able to receive. And those who are in private practice... I think are asking a lot of questions and they're trying to, to find the resources from their local hospitals or from other uh, provider groups. And I think given that this is really a national push, hopefully there will be enough resources to help people along the way. All right, Joe, last question. Do you think this is realistic by 2015, especially with them raising the standards every year for what they're going to expect? Do you think it's realistic? I think it's realistic to expect that there will be a lot of adoption. But whether or not we're really going to see meaningful use and see improvements in patient outcomes, I guess I'm somewhat skeptical there. And, and part of the reason is because we've seen that when, when hospitals especially convert from paper records to electronic records, a lot of things either fall through the cracks, there are errors that occur within the system, uh, balls get dropped, and so it, it can actually be somewhat dangerous, and you need to have multiple redundant steps in, along the way. I think once we overcome that hurdle and sort of smooth over a lot of those um, obstacles, and I think we will see that overall it's, it's a better environment, better system. Well, as I was told by some of my partners, if we do this, we'll automatically get to upcode our charts because we'll put so much information in there. The insurance companies will be ticking off all those boxes and we'll get paid more. <laughs> How's that for a cynical view? We that's, can, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty uh, that's the pretty bottom line. The bottom line. bottom line is we'll get paid more. Well, I mean, you'll, you'll certainly get paid more if you uh, receive the incentives, the yes. financial incentives.
Okay, unfortunately, we'll have to let you go there. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us, Joe. I'm sure this has been helpful to a lot of us and a lot of our listeners out there. And sorry about my cynicism, but I'm a Luddite. <laughs> I'm an Apple guy, actually. If Apple does it, I'll do it. <laughs> well, listen, thank you for having me. I, I, I definitely enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for being had. Pleasure, Dr. Kim. All right. Apple. I need Apple medical records. You know, I need it on my iPad. I, you know, I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, it's definitely something that within the next five years, I think they could put out there. Maybe an EHR system will come out strictly from Apple. <laughs> User-friendly user with a talking little animal to guide me through it. You know, Always the talking animal. That's really talking, what, uh, like, like very childlike. I'm if they the, just instituted that from the beginning, we'd probably have a 100% adoption rate. Yeah, well, the truth is, I mean, I, I get these letters from doctors who have electronic health records, and there are 16 pages when all they say is like, oh, yeah, your patient has arthritis. Yeah. And the rest of it is all boilerplate. And don't forget, they need to meet 25 criteria now, or 15 now. They, they scaled it back. But that's still a lot of things for demographics, et cetera, et cetera. I know. That's a lot. Another hoop to jump through. Another well, enough hoop. of that. Now on to more government stuff. <laughs> Let's turn now to our guest, Dr. Connie Mariano, the physician to Presidents George H. Bush, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush, and director of the White House Medical Unit. She's a 24-year veteran of the U.S. Navy, where she attained the rank of Rear Admiral. She left the White House in 2001 and retired from the Navy. Now she runs a concierge practice, the Center for Executive Medicine in Scottsdale, Arizona. And she's with us by phone from Arizona to talk about her new book, The White House Doctor, My Patients Were Presidents, a Memoir. Dr. Mariano, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Well, thanks for having me on. We're thank standing you. and saluting. Both Matt and I are, oh. are saluting to you, and we love your book and the, oh, what's right here. It makes a dandy coaster. And no, it's a, it's, <laughs> it's a great cover. You look great on it. Well, it, it oh, definitely thanks. uplifts our own status by having it on the table. So thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, so we're not going to ask you for any kind of gossip, but tell me, how tough is it really being doctor to the President of the United States and his family? You know, the, the medicine part's easy. It's the stuff docs do every day in a primary care practice in terms of acute care, primary care, making sure, you know, you do all the preventive medicine, preventive medicine things that we, we encourage our patients to do. What makes it difficult is everybody is looking over your shoulder and any uh, political fallout that may result of whatever you find uh, happens as a result of treating the president. Well, do you see the president completely privately, or is there a Secret Service man standing in the room all, at all times? You're actually private. The Secret Service stays outside the door when he comes into the doctor's office on the ground floor of the White House. When the president undergoes his annual exam at Bethesda Naval Hospital, there's a private suite, and you know it's the president's physical, because in the waiting room, there are doctors waiting, and it's, uh, it's multi-specialty where we bring in different consultants, and I'm sort of the coordinator of all this, and I bring in different specialists one by one into the exam room to see the president while I take notes. How come I was never asked? <laughs> That's my big Why wasn't I asked to check out the well, president? Well, you know, it's funny. It's, uh, number one, they usually pick military because they're free. They're within uh. the military system. And then it's up to the president if he has a particular doctor who used to treat him back in Little Rock or Texas or Chicago, okay. they'll bring them in. So if, you, if you're a good friend of the president when he was a candidate, they'll bring you in. Well, let's talk about that military connection for a second, because it's not just about the convenience factor. You very clearly put out there that practicing in the White House is like practicing battlefield medicine, and what better way to train for that than through the military? Can you talk about that? You have very limited resources, actually, um, you know, you're doing a lot of in-the-field uh, care where people pass out on lawns, they pass out on tarmacs, they're in large areas, and you also travel a lot where you may be in a foreign country with them where there's nothing in terms of a decent medical center, <clears throat> and then you may wind up 
having to medevac him or bringing in military resources like a, like we did in Africa, a 707 with a surgical deployable team with its own staff. So uh, in a lot of the mentality is you're on 24-7. In fact, the, the first three years of Clinton, I mean, I remember doing several trips where I was on for three, four Night, four days straight, and I thought this is this is not safe, guys. You know, you don't sleep. If something happens in the middle of a crisis, you know, you're jet lag, you're falling asleep. You you can make a big mistake here. So we changed that. We changed a lot of that. How far does your scope of responsibility go besides the first family and the Secret Service in the office? Where where do you stop if there's a a big party going on? You know, whoever's on the White House compound. Obviously, number one is the president. He's our primary then the first lady, then the first family, then the vice president as well and his family, the first pets, because we're called upon to look at them and we bring in the White House vet. If anybody passes out on the 18 acres of the White House, we get called. But whenever the president travels in his entourage, because they know we're the medical staff, we get pulled to take care of them. Uh, oftentimes, foreign leaders, if they're visiting the U.S., they're over at Blair House or you're in New York and they're in one of the hotels, the State Department people may ask us to go over there and take a look at them to, to help out. Did the medical staff, I mean, when you look upon that number of patients potentially that are part of the staff, part of the, the family, all those people, I mean, that could line up a small hospital. Did you have the requisite number of staff that you needed to be able to do what you were going to do? Because obviously... This is what we call small footprint. I was the senior doc who did most of the travel with the president and then in addition to myself, we had two Army, two Navy, two Air Force doctors, but we also had to cover the vice president whenever he traveled. So we would often use uh, a physician assistant. And then for the first lady, we would, whenever she went overseas, Hillary Rodham Clinton went overseas a lot back then, we would send a doctor and a nurse. Then we had six critical care nurses, and they would rotate overnight duty at the White House. And then whenever we went to, out of state or out of town, we would always bring a nurse on the airplane. So there were always two providers, a physician and a nurse on Air Force One, in case you had an emergency on board. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMDXM160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or call us by phone, 888-MD1-REACH. We're talking with Dr. Connie Mariano, former presidential physician for nine years through three presidents. And her new book is The White House Doctor, My Patients Were Presidents, A Memoir. And we're asking her why we weren't invited to the White House. (laughs) (laughs) And if I, listen, you know, this show is so popular. America is going to sell millions of books. It's so popular. We're putting Matt up for president. Would you you come back and be his doctor? And you can run healthcare, right? I'm just going to put it out there. It'll, yes, be, it'll uh, be changed a lot if we run healthcare. Trust I'm, kinda, me. I'm working on the wave and everything. I'd that like to gonna... see a doctor run healthcare. I was listening to you talk about uh, in the in the previous show, and I'm in private practice still, and I still struggle with electronic records. And I still fight with insurance companies to get patients' medicines authorized and and prior authorizations for tests that I think my patients should have, even in a concierge practice. I mean, patients, you know, we will submit information to insurance, and but we on their behalf, I don't collect from insurance, but it's still a struggle. Unlike the White House, you know, the best concierge practice in America is the, what the president gets. The president has 24-7 on-site medical care anywhere he goes, as well as his family, and you and I, the taxpayers, pay for it because it's through the military. Well, actually, no matter who the president is, politically, whether you agree or disagree, they actually deserve it. 
Yep, they, they work, do. They work they really the hard. They, they need the care. They need the care. Absolutely, they need the care. And also because of the security issue, the big thing we, we, we don't talk about a lot is the 25th Amendment. If the president's incapacitated and he's unconscious, you know, we're the first responders. And part of our training is not only do you treat uh, what's appropriate as a provider, as a physician, but you have to say, ah, 25th Amendment. Uh, and you set into place the political machinery that makes the vice president take over the responsibility president while the president is incapacitated. Not to mention the perk that you talked about, and I love this, about how you said that caring for the president was one of the only instances in which you could actually follow the patient around nonstop and witness live the patient being noncompliant. Absolutely. <laughs> you counsel fantastic. him on his diet, don't you, you know, you're, you're smoking, and et cetera, et cetera. And I remember one time we were uh, watching President Clinton play golf, uh, one of the golf courses in Virginia, and, you know, he's, he's not lit, the cigar isn't lit, he's just chewing on it. He puts it down on the ground, he hits the ball, and he's chewing on this cigar, and the military aide who's sitting beside me says, can't you do something about that? Can't you counsel him? And I said, listen, I'm his doctor. I've counseled him. I'm his doctor. I'm not his mother. <laughs> Good line. I'm going to use it on my patients. I'm not your mother. <laughs> That's a great idea. But you yourself were, were caught a few times, maybe more than once. Yeah, uh, eating potato chips. Yeah, I know. Chips. Bad habit. See, we Diet look- Coke and chips. Is this a do as I say, not as I do situation? <laughs> We have some things. It's all about moderation. Because I imagine if anybody's going to catch you on that and really let you get an earful, it's going to be the president of the United oh, yeah. States. Well, Clinton had such a great sense of humor. And actually, all the presidents have had good sense of humor. You have to in that job. Yeah, we saw that picture in your book of you eating potato chips and getting <laughs> reamed out by the president. And respect goes to the person who cleared that to go right. into the book. So <laughs> yeah. thank you for doing that. What about your views on the climate of care of the White House. I, I loved how you talked about a security guard who told you up front from the very beginning, welcome to the White House, where little things are big things. Oh, it's true. Little things are big things. And, you know, when the president's sick, it's not his issue. It's your problem. His staff will come up and say, can't you do something about his voice? He's hoarse again. You need to fix that. And like, right away. <laughs> it's like, or he has a cold. You need to, you need to treat that right away. It's like, well, it's going to take a little longer. It's a virus. I'm not going to give him anything special for that. It's all the basic things, and there's there's this this ex- expectation that you have some magic pill, and you don't. It's whatever you would do appropriately in private practice. You have to over and over again say, "I have to do the same for the president." We're not going to experiment with him and do some strange things. Well, everybody expects the president to be superhuman. Yeah, it's true. It's a tough job. But you did have to be extremely flexible, didn't you? I mean, there were lines that the first lady, the president, and, you know, for instance, with the Clintons, that they just wouldn't cross. You talked about Hillary Rodham Clinton when she had calf pain. You looked into it. You found a clot. She refused to kind of get off the, you know, the work beat, and you had to accommodate to that, and you had to actually go with some experimental treatments. We did. We went with Lovenox at the time. It came out. It was just approved by the FDA, and we watched her very carefully. We actually asked uh, one of the uh, hematologists from Georgetown to come over, and we did the uh, anticoagulation uh, workup to make uh, the hypercoagulable workup to see if she made sure she didn't have any other issues that were going on. But you do, you, and you know, the president had his quadriceps surgery. I mean, how many patients, you know, three days after quadriceps surgery, going to send forty-seven and go to uh, Helsinki? I mean, good grief. He says, "No, I'm just you got to make it happen." 
Oh, come on. We're doctors. I had my hernia fixed, and I was back at work two days later oh, with my patients who were, who were telling me they were out for eight weeks. So. And I'm undergoing surgery right now. That's right. Well, I'm during the fine. show. We're not good so, patients. All right. Now, I know, <laughs> I, okay, we know about HIPAA, and we know that you're really not a secret teller, but I want to know, mm-hmm. which president was the biggest wuss when it came to shots, and how would they do with multiple needles in that vaccination thing we talked the about? The trypanophobia is really what well, we're Well, you know what's interesting? They, uh, the, the three, well, the, definitely the two I treated, uh, Bush Sr. and Clinton, both got allergies shots. And actually Reagan did. I've never treated Reagan. But they got allergy shots at least once a week. And they were actually good. Nobody, nobody passed out. The only guys I noticed at the time we were, when we were giving gamma globulin for hepatitis A was a lot of some of the Secret Service guys would get lightheaded. They're wusses, man. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. believe it. I was surprised. Well, they'll be here. They'll be in our studio in about three seconds, Matt. You know, we're Some kidding. lines are not going to cross. Really, we're yeah. really kidding. They're great guys. Now, you instituted a number of novel protocols over there, including what you, you talked about, the 24-hour on-site coverage. Tell us a little bit about that, because some of these things are carrying over into today. Oh, they are. They're in effect today. When I started off with Bush Sr., uh, my predecessor essentially said, Dr. Lee said, well, when you're done, you know, let's say you're in Washington, the president's in for the night. Uh, upstairs on the second floor, all the medical staff went home. And it sort of bothered me. I said, well, what if he, like, has chest pain or chokes or falls down the stairs? And the order was, never mind, Secret Service is here in the house because they have 24-hour shift coverage. They can put him and throw him in the ambulance and go down to GW. I said, well, okay, that's the order, but what if we're in Bermuda? We're in Bermuda, and you have three doctors, nurses, a whole team why would he, I mean, it didn't make sense. And then when Clinton came on board, he was up all, you know, late into the night. We were always traveling. I said, you know, this is, we have to play it safe. We have to be smart. We need 24-hour coverage. And, and we did. I was one of the first people to spend the night in the bomb shelter of the White House where they pulled duty. Uh, and it was fine. And we just rotated people doing overnight duty in case there was an emergency in the middle of the night or the president had to be evacuated. At least you had one medical person in that group that was evacuating with them. Wow, the bomb shelter. They still have those old crackers and things from the 1960s oh, down oh, there? Oh, no. It's been upgraded a little bit. Oh, I would eat those. <laughs> I still have those in my basement. <laughs> I would not eat those. But it's amazing to think with this medical team, which has a bigger lens on it than any other team in the world, had to be stretched so thin because of all the demands on so many people. I mean, that has always been interesting to me. Well, the mission, it's funny, the mission or who we're responsible for can expand considerably your your you know, people were, you know, who they say, well, you need to take a look at so-and-so. Because, you know, when they had guests in the house, you took care of them. When they had family visiting, you took care of them. And, and, and what happens is whenever the president goes overseas, that's a huge tasking because for every city we would travel to, we would always send either a nurse or a medic or a PA to cover that city. And then I would be on the primary. I would be on the, main, on the airplane with the president and then I would send one of the doctors ahead of me about a week ahead of time, let's say, to Australia. They would wait for me, so then their, their jet lag wasn't as bad as my jet lag. And then as soon as I arrived, I'd hand the medical bag. They would follow the president around doing events. I would go back to the hotel, but you can't really go to sleep because you're doing sick call. People who were in the traveling party, any of the military or the White House staff who got sick, they're lined outside your door saying, hey, I've got gastroenteritis, I've hurt my back, you know, I can't sleep, you you need to take a look at me. Well, you've got a a concierge practice now for executives who fly in to see you. Would you say that this White House training was the best thing you could do to deal with these executives? Oh, absolutely. I think, number one, I I will never be intimidated by a patient again. (laughs) 
I mean, you're, you're, it's 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 interesting. A lot of people, when they meet the president first time, obviously and justifiably so, you're intimidated. It's like, oh my gosh. Then you have to realize he's a human being like anybody else, and I need to focus on my job, which is to be the doctor, to partner with his health healthcare, and advise him. And a lot of my patients uh, are rather high profile. CEOs of companies, and they're used to having people jump, you know, when they, or used to people having not disagree with them. And there are times I'll say, you know, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's a good idea. Let me tell you why. And they're very intelligent people, and they'll come armed with all their opinions, and you just, you just have to work it out with them. Okay. Well, thank you. Your, your book is great. It's called The White House Doctor, My Patients for Presidents. You look great on the cover. You look well-rested now. <laughs> you look like you're in shape. Nine and years. A uh, bag of potato waiting. chips underneath that pocket, I can see Absolutely. there. Absolutely. <laughs> so our guest today has been Dr. Connie Mariano. She was the White House doctor during three presidential terms. We've been talking to her about her experiences, her career, and her book. Dr. Mariano, thanks for being a guest on Second Opinion Live here on ReachMD. It's The White House Doctor. Thank you both very much. That's great. Interesting job. She sounds charming. I want her as my doctor when and I'm president. And I love this, the, the turnaround of she spent nine years treating the most powerful man in the world as just a patient. And now she's transitioned to a practice where she does concierge practice for people who are in very elite status positions in the corporate world. And she gets to do the same thing, well, treat what, them just like a patient. What, what gets me is like she says they were stretched thin. It's the government. They get more IRS agents if they need them. Just get more army doctors in. You know, it's like they should not ever be stretched thin protecting the first family. Like I said before, no matter what your politics, these are the people who are the head of the government. They deserve that kind of care and protection. It's like just, hey, call up Andrews Air Force Base and say, send us over some docs. You know, you'd think it'd be that simple, but go to the DMV and just get your first class example from the trenches of how bureaucracy works. It must have been extremely difficult. I don't know. I went to the cable company today. It was pretty easy. So. <laughs> and with that, time to bring this show to a close. Michael's still got some trypanophobia issues to work out. That's Ouch. fear of injections, everybody. No We've said injections. it about 30 times in case you missed it earlier. We're all about the psych terms today. So until next time, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And for more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com SOL. Give us a shout on Twitter or Facebook and check out our free medical radio app on your iPhone. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to Tony in the control booth over here. Keep your radio dialed into ReachMDXM160. Keep listening, and once again, do not forget Haiti. The problem is not over. Thank you. <laughs>